You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's December 2nd. Ongoing protests against China's zero-COVID policy have conjured comparisons to the 1989 Tiananmen Square pro-democracy movement. It's too soon to equate these two moments in history, says Rand's Amanda Kerrigan. But reflecting on the past can provide insights into the future. Drawing on her knowledge of the Tiananmen protests, Kerrigan identifies five key questions to monitor as the situation unfolds. First, how are protesters' demands evolving? The Tiananmen Square movement began with calls for the Chinese Communist Party to admit its mistakes, lift media restrictions, and give students the right to form organizations. Over time, the protesters radicalized their demands, calling for the resignation of Chinese leaders. Today, Chinese protesters also have a wide range of demands, including calling for Xi Jinping to step down. If the demands threatening Chinese leadership become more dominant, then the protests may not only elicit a harsher response from the government, but could also become less appealing to Chinese citizens who don't want to be associated with more radical demands. Second, who is organizing and participating in the protests? One of the criticisms of the Tiananmen movement was that it was elite, dominated by urban students and intellectuals and that it failed to incorporate a wider swath of the Chinese population. This time around, the importance of including various socioeconomic classes still holds. While many of the protesters again appear to be young and urban, China's factory workers have also protested COVID lockdowns over the last few months. It would be a significant development, Kerrigan says, if those two socioeconomic classes joined forces in coordinated protest against the government. Third, what is the level of police response? One of the reasons the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, was used to quell the Tiananmen protests was because China's police force had proved ineffective. But the police response to today's protest has been more robust, and a PLA response similar to 1989 is highly unlikely as it could impose unthinkable reputational costs on the Chinese military. Fourth, how willing are China's leaders to respond to protesters' demands? So far, there have been some relaxations to the COVID-0 restrictions, both before and following the current protests. But policy changes may prove tricky for the Chinese government to stomach as the number of COVID cases keeps climbing. Fifth, Is there disagreement among China's leaders about how to handle the protests? At the time of the Tiananmen Square movement, then-Chinese Premier Zhao Ziyang was a reformist who took a more sympathetic position towards the protesters. This led to his political demise. Today, it doesn't appear that China has any reform-minded leaders left at the very top, but it's still important to look for signs of internal differences among China's leadership, both at national and local levels. Watching all these factors closely may indicate what trajectory the Chinese Communist Party and protesters are on as both strive to achieve their goals. Whether the protests fizzle out or garner more support, Kerrigan says they are a reminder that, quote, authoritarian systems, like democracies, need to be responsive to their people one way or another. 
Yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden said that he is open to speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss ending the war in Ukraine. Biden said that he would speak to Putin to, quote, find out what he's willing to do and would only begin talks with Moscow in consultation with NATO allies. Biden's remarks echo those by other U.S. policymakers in recent weeks. Last month, the U.S. House of Representatives Progressive Caucus penned a letter, which was later retracted, calling for a diplomatic solution. Further, Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy has promised to scrutinize aid to Ukraine and push for an end to the war. Even U.S. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said that Ukraine should negotiate, specifying that the decision should be Kyiv's alone. Writing before Biden's latest remarks, RAND researchers Raphael Cohen and John Gentile outlined the potential harms of pursuing a diplomatic solution given the current situation in Ukraine. Despite the way it is commonly portrayed, they say, diplomacy is not intrinsically and always good, nor is it cost-free. And in the case of the Russia-Ukraine war, there's currently very little upside to negotiating. To start, diplomacy is unlikely to end the war, simply because Russian and Ukrainian interests do not yet overlap. The Ukrainians want their country back. They want reparations for the damage Russia has done and accountability for Russian war crimes. Russia, by contrast, has made it clear that it still intends to bend Ukraine to its will. It has illegally annexed several regions in eastern and southern Ukraine, so withdrawing would be equivalent to ceding parts of Russia. Diplomacy is also unlikely to prevent future escalation of the conflict. Presumably, Moscow is making nuclear threats because it is losing on the battlefield and lacks other options. Pursuing a diplomatic solution wouldn't change this. Moscow would still be losing the war and looking for a way to reverse its fortunes. What about the downside? Cohen and Gentile say there may be serious costs to pursuing a settlement. To start, pushing Ukraine to negotiate now sends a series of signals, none of them good. It signals to the Russians that they can simply wait out Ukraine's Western supporters, thereby protracting the conflict. It signals to the Ukrainians and their allies and partners that the U.S. might put up a good fight for a while, but will, in the end, abandon them. And it tells the U.S. public that its leaders are not invested in seeing this war through, which in turn could increase domestic impatience with it. On top of this, starting negotiations now could halt the momentum Ukraine has gained in recent months. There will come a time for diplomacy in Ukraine, our researchers say. Hopefully it comes soon, but it doesn't seem to be today. To many, being a secret agent is a dream job, adrenaline-filled and glamorous. It can be that way some days, says Rand's Heather Williams, who spent 13 years working in the intelligence community. But it can also be isolating, relentless, and traumatizing. Quote, in our line of work, being exposed to violent and traumatizing events all day is routine. And then we leave the office to go home to our family. It's a life that we signed up for, but it doesn't mean there aren't real consequences. A recent RAND paper co-authored by Williams examines how lasting trauma affects intelligence personnel and what can be done to address this problem. For instance, the intelligence community needs to develop a culture of mental wellness, which includes building a deeper understanding of the symptoms of various types of trauma, 
communicating to its workforce about those different forms of trauma and how trauma affects individuals, and being clear about what resources can help. Another important area of improvement is reducing stigma. Stigma is a well-recognized hindrance to seeking mental health care in general, but intelligence officers face unique circumstances. For example, they may worry that seeking help, even through official channels, could compromise their security clearance. And they are often legally prohibited from talking about their professional experiences with their family and friends, which would typically be an important support network for someone experiencing trauma. One positive note, Williams says, is that the intelligence community isn't the first to deal with these problems. It's simply late in doing so. There's a wealth of applicable literature on trauma risks for the military, first responders, journalists, and other professionals. But intelligence leaders must be willing to dedicate attention and resources to the problem. The consequences of ignoring the mental and emotional costs of intelligence work can be tragic, both individually and to the nation, she says. Los Angeles voters recently approved the so-called mansion tax, which aims to raise funds to build new affordable housing, an estimated 26,000 units. Projects funded by the tax that consist of 40 or more housing units must be built by a nearly 100% union workforce. Rand's Jason Ward led a 2021 study that examined a similar project labor agreement in Los Angeles. He found that requiring union labor added roughly 15% to construction costs on affected projects. The labor stipulation had another significant effect. It incentivized smaller development that falls below the threshold where union labor would have been mandated. Ultimately, this drives up the average cost of new housing. That's because larger projects allow for fixed construction costs, including land acquisition, to be spread across more housing units. Another important factor, the Fed's recent interest rate hikes are also likely to cut into the number of real estate sales, and thus cut into revenue generated by the mansion tax. Considering these additional costs, Ward says that proponents of the new mansion tax are likely overpromising on the amount of housing units it can ultimately fund. So, Angelinos may want to temper their expectations of the new tax's ability to expand affordable housing. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>